Welcome to Visionaries Global Media, your number one source for podcasting entertainment. Visionaries Global Media, envisioning excellence on a global scale. Welcome to episode 35 of the SJP Wrestling Podcast. Thank you very, very much for pressing play and listening to the show today. It is, as always, hugely appreciated. And on today's show, we are looking back at some old school, early 90s WCW with Shan King Cage Current of the Evolution Wrestling Promotion in Gloucester, going back to 1993 and checking out Super Brawl 3 from WCW in a very odd odd position, odd time in the wrestling business in general, um, but it's a really enjoyable chat looking back on a very different time in the wrestling business. I hope you enjoy it. Coming up on the show in future weeks, we have more things of a similar ilk. We're looking back at pay-per-views from 2000 still with David Eaton, uh, running through the whole year there in order. We've also got other ex-guests returning to look at WWF and WCW and probably, I imagine, other promotions as well. Um, Shows from the past, matches from the past, events from the past and so on. It's really interesting hearing some of these people who have actually been in the ring at varying different levels and different times in their career discuss what makes certain matches work the way they do, or simply just what they like and what they dislike. It's it's really interesting for me having these conversations, and I really hope it's interesting for you uh, listening to these as well. Um, so yeah, that's it really. That's all, uh, that's all I need to express this time round, I guess. Enough of me waffling on. Um, so let's get straight to it. Let's have a little look back at Super Brawl 3. Hello, brother. This is NWA WCW Enhancement Talent, Randy Hogan, baby, being in the ring with the Road Warriors, Vader, Abdul the Butcher, Midnight Express and all them guys. Let me tell you, it was dang rough, but not as rough as listening to Cyan Mags on that chain wrestling show, brother. What you gonna do when this pair of fools, Cyan Mags and chain wrestling, brother, runs wild on you? Sean Karand, welcome back to the SJP Wrestling Podcast. How are we doing? I'm very good. Thank you for having me back. No, no, excellent stuff. Really, really happy to be speaking with you again. Um, something that, well, you're very well aware of, but want to make everyone listening aware of, is what I'm doing now with a lot of shows is people I've had on and spoken to um, about their their journey into the wrestling business their training process and so on um are are coming back on the show to look back on old pay-per-views or uh, particular matches or particular moments or events in the past um and that's that's what we're doing with you today sir yeah that is indeed looking forward to it yeah definitely i mean before we get to our main topic today um just how how you've been doing since we last spoke it's been well we're in 
episode 35 36 or whatever has not long come out for me and i believe you were initially on way back virtually when we were in single digits so i mean it's been, a, it's been yeah yeah it's been a little while so i mean how, how have you been how's the, the covid situation and wrestling been for you in general it's uh yeah it's been all right i mean taking everything essentially one day as it comes really um yeah trying to trying to keep in shape as where i can but obviously that's a little bit harder at the minute but i'm doing all right mate doing all right keep it on hopefully everything will be back to normal soon so yeah 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 not too bad not too bad it's uh been a bit of a slog for everyone but gladly there appears to be at the time of uh, our recording there appears to be a little light at the end of the tunnel we seem to be coming towards what i hope is the end of all this and we can get back to a little bit of normalcy i suppose um wrestling wise i know you worked um some sort of behind closed doors and covid safe matches for evolution wrestling and their next gen tournament um and matches they were putting on out on youtube um how how was that experience because i mean you're, you're literally wrestling i mean i know this because obviously i i did i added the commentary after the fact so i've seen the, the matches and so on and it's very very much in a closed off space with, and again with social distancing and covid regulations in place there's no one there so i mean that was been a, quite a different atmosphere for you to work in in front of how was that it was yeah no it was it was really fun um obviously it was just nice to wrestle again more than anything else uh but yeah it was a little bit weird having no crowd because there's you try and look out for the crowd like in uh what's the word i'm trying to think of well their reaction participation, participation that's yeah, the word okay. i'm looking for <laughs> uh yeah you you look for the crowd participation but obviously with no crowd you just sort of have to judge everything sort of by ear and it's uh it's good it's good fun had a had a good good match against dale and uh simon quest who was on the show not too long ago yeah that's right yeah and yeah if anyone who hasn't seen it the uh the matches are all up on evolution wrestling's youtube yeah yeah i've seen them all obviously cause I, like i said i added the commentary to the ones that they it's a great commentary as well my friend well that's, that's very kind of you to say <laughs> um i was quite well i was quite nervous and second guessing myself early on because it's very much the first time i've done this and it's a completely different atmosphere as well because as you say there is no crowd to react to for me adding the commentary either i'm not watching it live i was literally sat in my bedroom with my laptop and my headset on and my commentary partner was sat x amount of miles away doing the same thing in his bedroom so it's quite a quite an odd setup but needs must for the whole coronavirus situation and the first few matches i'm not gonna lie i did them i i, I wanted to do them again um but the guys at evolution said they were fine but i played them back and i, I wasn't happy with them at all but i feel towards the end i kind of got into it a bit more kind of felt a bit more confident um but so yeah ho- yeah yeah so hopefully that's something that um happens again evolution has said they want me to do more so when that happens hopefully i'll be a bit more confident again and y- you learn the more you do things don't you so hopefully i'll be a improving a great deal so yeah that's very kind of you to say i did i did enjoy it though i really enjoyed it so yeah something a bit new for me so that that, that was nice to keep me uh busy for a period i suppose during lockdown <laughs> <laughs> um 
today our main topic is the WCW pay-per-view Super Brawl 3 from 1993. So quite a quite an odd um, shook-up era in the wrestling business, I feel, 93. Especially in, in the WWF and WCW, the two main companies. Very almost like transition periods these companies were going through in 1993. Um why exactly did, did this pay-per-view sort of stand out for you as one that you wanted us to discuss today? Was there any particular reasons, or was it just the card itself, or wh- why was it it stood out? Well, when when you asked me to be part of this, and if I had any thoughts of anything I'd like to look back on, uh, back when I was younger, I was, a, I was a WCW guy more than anything else. Mm-hmm. And I sort of came into WCW, I'd say around 90... Probably around '96, um, and I thought I know this form of WCW, but I want to go back slightly further because the the style of wrestling I found from say the start of the '90s to the end of the '90s is vastly different. Like, yeah. There's a lot that happens in a few few years. Um, obviously the kicking off of the Monday Night Wars meant everything got a little bit more edgy whereas uh, whereas back in the start of the 90s everything was more sort of straight laced and looked like a proper sort of fight and I mean I definitely got those vibes from this pay-per-view, I don't know about you but everything just looked like they were trying to hurt each other yeah, yeah, very much so I mean, it's, I mean we'll get into the, mat, the, the card match by match in a moment but it's very much to me a show of, uh, I suppose, peaks and troughs, really, sort of, um, um, you know, hills and valleys. There's a lot of good, but there's also quite a lot of what, what I didn't like as well. Um, but again, I think this is a company very much in 1993 trying to find its feet. Yeah, you, exactly. they've had Yeah, they've had the whole, the whole issue of Ric Flair departing in 1991 and taking the, the NWA world title with him. Um, for various reasons he's then they basically then ended up getting the belt back but in the meantime created their own world championship the wcw world championship so they've got two world titles effectively and the two world titles are being fought under different rules with wcw rules versus nwa rules and like being thrown over the top rope as a disqualification for one set of rules and not the other and so on so i think that confuses things a little bit you still got Guys very much from the old school on this card with the likes of Paul Orndorff um, and I suppose to a degree the likes of the Rock and Roll Express uh, and so on. But then you've got newer faces coming through as well with like the Hollywood Blondes, um, guys they were trying to push when it wasn't quite working with Eric Watts, um, yeah. a, a very fresh-faced, young-looking Chris Benoit oh, was, o- yeah. was over from Japan for a match and... It really is a company trying to find its feet. And you end up with some really, really good stuff from WCW, in, in, especially in 1994, when Rick Rude was very active uh, and was the US champion, um, was having matches with Steamboat. It's a real good period in WCW for me. And it kind of begins around this time and ends kind of when Hogan comes in. So this is a real sort of strange little window into this company as it tries to sort of find its way. But across the other side of the, the other side of the fence, I think the WWF's very much the same. Hogan has already 
basically gone in 93. I mean, he does turn up on a couple of pay-per-views, don't get me wrong. He does have that crazy world title win at WrestleMania 9. But he's he's effectively, he's not full-time anymore. They're trying to find their answer to Hogan not being there. Um, they're struggling to bring in bring in the numbers they were bringing in in the late 80s. They have the whole Lex Luger experiment, which fails. Yeah. Um, the steroid scandal changes the, the direction with regards to the body types and the size of the guys they're using. So I think wrestling in general at this time was, was a really interesting little period because both companies are really struggling to find themselves. I feel, what, what, what do you think? Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. Both this sort of 93, 94 sort of start of 95 as well. Um, like you said, both, both companies are trying to find their feet and you can see through the matches that they're putting on and the way they're trying to present themselves that they're trying so hard to find it. And like bringing of uh, Benoit for this pay-per-view and having Muta as well there. They're just trying to they're trying to find something that they can latch on to and help push them forward into the next period. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And it's it's quite ironic really that the WWF losing Hogan as a full-time performer is kind of what WCW settled upon, even though he was kind of stale already by this stage. It's, it's interesting how things work out from one company to the next. Um Okay, well, well, we'll crack straight on then, shall we? The the event, uh, Super Brawl 3, is first broadcast on pay-per-view on February the 21st, 1993. It comes from the Asheville Civic Center in Asheville, North Carolina. The attendance is reported as just shy of 6,500, with around three quarters of that paying, the rest being comps, which is a good number for WCW in this is, period. Yeah, it is. And they were um, a hot crowd, I have yeah. to say. They were yeah, they were a especially hot crowd. The the opening contest is, I suppose, a real snippet of the time, to be fair, as, as me and Sean were just talking about. You have the sort of mix-and-match oddball team of Eric Watts and Marcus Bagwell. Eric Watts being the son of the head booker at the time, Bill Watts, and Marcus Bagwell, before the whole buff Bagwell stage came in, was seemed to be pretty much every year voted WCW's Rookie of the Year in, in WCW magazine um, against um, a very young, stunning Steve Austin. I wonder whatever happened to him, eh? And, uh, <laughs> and flying Brian Pillman, who during this period went on to be known as the Hollywood Blondes. This is very early in their formation. They've just got the matching ring gear. They're not quite there with the matching waistcoats, uh, waistcoats and the big gold chains just yet. That came shortly afterwards. But you can see the chemistry between Brian Pillman and Steve Austin, even at this early stage in their tag career, can't you? Oh, yeah, definitely. There's... There's parts in the match which uh, they it feels as if they're working off the same wavelength. And you can see it's all starting to click. You can see the arrogance just sort of slowly starting to build throughout the match and what would later become the gold chains, like you said, and the cockiness. I do have to say, though, no matter how many times I see it, it is still a bit weird to see Austin with hair. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> very much so. <laughs> I'm, just, well, I'm so used to him being bold. The um, 
he a little a little bit of t- period of time before this he was also working out in the uswa and i found a videotape of the uswa in this little dingy secondhand store in, in, in gloucester city center and they had wwf tapes and they had wcw tapes and other companies that i didn't recognize and so on but this uswa tape was like half the price of all the others so i could afford it with my little bit of pocket money i had left and i took it home and put it in and steve austin was on this show in the uswa and his hair obviously his hair was still blonde but it was down to his shoulders and it was honest it is so so strange looking back when you see it it is surreal because he's still very much thinning out on top but he's he's at that point where he's just refusing to actually bite the bullet and cut it you know it's (laughs) it's quite an interesting look um eric watts also has quite the interesting look here he he looks very old school despite being well despite being relatively new in the business here he looks more based in the the early 80s as opposed to the early 90s i think with his style and his gear and his, his general body shape and appearance and the fans aren't taking to him at all are they that he's getting oh, booed every time he tags him no this crowd this crowd was all about bagwell i found um I, to be honest, this is the first actual time I've seen uh, Marcus Bagwell, who's not in his buff Bagwell persona. And okay. I can't believe how insanely good he was. Yeah. Like, Sorry, buff, buff Bagwell was, I mean, it was all it was all cockiness and bravado. and But this Marcus Bagwell, was, he could go, man. I did not expect this from him. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a funny one because around this time you had WCW Worldwide showing on ITV on a Saturday afternoon. And that was my only really sort of um, way into WCW at this period. And it was very much a case of almost like superstars or primetime wrestling or, or whatever with the WWF. It was very much you'd have one maybe bigger attraction match at the end, but everything else was pretty much squash matches and then clips from their main shows like WCW Saturday Night. Bagwell was on uh, WCW Worldwide virtually every week, beating some young lad or you know some old school uh, jobber, I suppose, for want of a better term. So I'd seen him quite a bit when I was younger. And it, I didn't twig when I then started getting back into WCW that Buff Bagwell was the same person. It never, the penny didn't drop for many weeks. Oh, yeah. Like, it's... It, they look so different. Mm. Like he did very well to re-emerge himself as Buff Bagwell. Yeah, I mean, t- to be honest, looking back now in hindsight, the name should have been a bloody big clue for me. You know? <laughs> <laughs> well, to be honest, me too, because when I was watching this uh, when we, for this podcast, I I saw Marcus Bagwell and I thought that can't be Buff Bagwell. I had to go onto Wikipedia to look it up. Because I just, I didn't believe it to the start because I never thought Buff could go like the way he was going in this match. Yeah, he does look very good, doesn't he? And I, I think, I, I think you look at the, the three competitors we're talking, Austin, Pillman and Bagwell. Yeah. They, they, they've got a little something about them, haven't they? They've got a good physique or they've got uh, a good look to them. I mean, uh, Pillman with it, with the hair and, and the way he moves in the ring and uh, they, they've got something about them. Poor yeah, Eric, they're, all, Eric Watts, they're all very but, fluid in yeah. the way they, way they work matches. And I mean, you could really see everything looked so smooth. 
yeah, and they've got a little bit of a sparkle about them in just the way they look, which I think then, by comparison, makes Eric Watts look even plainer, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, Eric Watts did look like uh, he was just the sort of odd one out compared to these mm. two. Yeah, and it was a real shame. I mean, he was basically pushed into these roles and he had a big feud with Arn Anderson as well, which involved him beating up Anderson in a car park at a petrol station or a supermarket. So I'll have to look that up to find out exactly what it was. I believe it was a petrol station. He ends up putting him in an STF at a petrol station or something like that. <laughs> it's a really odd segment, for, especially for this time. But he was pushed into these roles primarily because his dad was in charge, old cowboy Bill Watts. And um, he was very much rejected, very much booed, and people didn't want to see him, um, which is a shame for the young man. But at the same time, he was pushed into these roles, and I believe he just simply wasn't ready. Um, there's one stage he tags in, and Jesse Ventura even even sells the kid out in a way, saying, why do they boo every time um, every time Watts tags in? And I'm thinking, man, you can't stitch him up like that. That's harsh. Pointing yeah. that out to the audience at home when the kid's trying to get over as, as a babyface. And Tony Schiavone, bless him, does his absolute best to try and save this comment by Jesse Ventura. Ventura says, why do they boo every time he's tagged in? Schiavone responds, is that a boo? I thought they were all going, woo. Like, what, yeah. what, where, why I... would they be going woo? Why, why does that make... <laughs> <You know? laughs> Yeah, like, I just, I do feel bad for the guy because, it, like you said, he is trying to work as a baby face and they're just, they're not having it. The crowd are just not having it because he's essentially the booker's son pushed to, well, not to levels he can't reach, but just with the wrong people mm. who just don't really help what he brings to the table. Yeah, uh, according to people who were around at the time the likes of eric bischoff and um and kevin sullivan as well was still involved in the company the sort of you know the, the standard talking heads that you have at these documentaries and so on they say that nobody ever really had a problem with eric watts he was always treated well but everybody hated bill watts because he was effectively a bully he was effectively a, a, a nasty bully and it eventually you know he got he eventually lost his job through some form of uh, racist comments he was making and so on. He wasn't a particularly pleasant man. And it turned out that Eric was kind of getting the sort of repercussions of his dad not being liked very much in certain circles. Which, again, is a shame because it's not his fault. His dad was a dick, you know? Yeah, no, it is, it is a shame. Yeah, definitely. I mean, we ultimately get the... The supposed heel team, but the the team that are garnishing more cheers than than their opposition, the Hollywood Blondes, they they ultimately win the contest after roughly sixteen minutes or so. Um, I really enjoyed this match. I, I thought it was a great opener. They were given plenty of time. They were, uh, yeah. Some great tag team wrestling, Sean. It was. I. It was fantastic. There there were points in this match where every time sort of Austin was under pressure, Pillman would just dive in, throw a kick, and just get every use every little advantage he could to just make sure they were all they were both as fresh as possible and always in control. And uh, I mean, bad yeah, like Bagwell was just countering and countering. I mean, there was a great sort of towards the finish of the match where Bagwell hits what looks like a huge fisherman's buster, mm-hmm. and it looks like that's it. The uh, Bagwell's going for the pin, but Austin comes off the top rope with just this solid looking forearm yeah. into just Bagwell's face and allowing Pillman to get the win. And I was just, 
I mean, that forearm did not look like it was fun to take. No, no, it didn't. But again, it's that kind of very simple but effective kind of heel move, move isn't it? The, the, the non-legal man interfering to get their team the win. And it got a reaction from the crowd because it is obviously breaking the rules. And this is an issue I have sometimes with modern tag team wrestling in that you see it's also tags sometimes don't matter. And who the legal man is doesn't matter. And you yeah, end up with everyone in the ring. And nowadays. yeah, and it's, it's okay on an occasion to get the crowd going, but when it's every match and it's for a big portion of the match, it kind of defeats the purpose of it being a tag team match. It must as well just be a free for all. And, and when you've yeah. got moments like this finish, it to me it shows why it's important to obey these rules because then you can get heat by breaking them. Oh yeah, yeah, hundred percent. Like there are matches nowadays where tag team wrestling within three minutes, it's like it's just irrelevant of calling it a tag team match. Mm. Like you don't know who's legal, you don't know like who's who's going for what whether or not they actually got the tag or if they're just in the match. Like it, but yeah, this was this was a very good exhibition of old-school tag team where it does matter. You have to have the tag group. Like, tags do matter in this match. And Hollywood Blondes were just using every little advantage. was just perfect. Perfect synchronicity between the two. Yeah, definitely, definitely. I, uh, I really enjoyed this. This was a plus point on the show for me. But the next contest, I think, was probably my match of the night. Um, you have two cold Scorpio facing Chris Benoit. Just in a, a low down the card singles match. It's just come after the tag opener that the crowd were really into. Um, in the WWE nowadays, this this sort of slot would be occupied by a quick five minute throwaway match, and then you probably end up going back to some comedy segment somewhere potentially or something like that. But these yeah, guys. That's true. Yeah, these these guys get loads of time, and honestly, this was absolutely fantastic. I loved every single second of this. Yeah, this this match was phenomenal. But before before um, we get into this match, I do just have to make a point of the little video segment where Flair turns up. Oh yes, Flair returns to WCW, and oh my god, did he not look like an absolute superstar? Yep. He, uh, he's got this massive security escort for honestly no reason. He's just, it's flair in it. Like, just because he can, yeah. Just just because, like, even the interviewer who came up, like, they got a full pat down. Like, it's just unnecessary. <laughs> the, oh, that the, was uh, Missy no But honestly, flair steps out of this limo, pops that classic flair smirk that he does a cheeky little woo and then sort of walks into the arena. And I mean, the crowd went mental for that. Yeah. Yeah. He's an absolute star. I mean, there's so many flair Absolutely signs. Mental. Crowd. You know, you know, everyone knows he's not working a match, but there's so many signs in the crowd for flair. And eventually when he comes out, uh, later on in the show, he gets one of the biggest reactions of the, of the evening, even though he's not actually wrestling a match, but he's, he's just coming back here to the WCW following. He he's, he's asked for his release from WWF and they booked it into quite a clever loser leaves time match with Mr. Perfect on, on an episode of uh, Monday night raw, probably one of the, probably one of the first great Monday night raw matches was Mr. Perfect versus flair loser leaves the WWF. And obviously flair uh, did the honors left the company 
um, re-signed with WCW, he couldn't actually wrestle for several weeks because of his non-compete. So you ended up with the Flair for the Gold talk show segment, which again, if if you've ever seen any of those on WCW Saturday night and Clash of the Champions shows and so on, that's just flair all over as well. It's it's. Oh, that's just flair being flair, isn't it? That's, yeah, yeah. And the, the, he's given free reign just to do whatever he feels like. And the set is like a high rise apartment, and there's a bar in the corner of the apartment, and there's sofas for everyone to sit and chat on. And Arn Anderson's leant up against the bar, just chilling out, having a drink. And Fifi the maid, who Rick is now married to, um, <laughs> Fifi the maid <laughs> is bringing them drinks and so on. And it's just a really cool take on the old-fashioned kind of interview segment but that kind of kept rick busy and kept him on television whilst his his no compete sort of expired and with the wwf and he could start wrestling again um but yeah i mean two gold scorpio chris benoit it's just insane there's there's things here that i've not seen for years i mean there's there's a hammerlock by scorpio where he uses his feet to apply it and keeps dropping back i've not seen that done in such a long time no i i haven't seen that done in such a long time i i've forgotten about the uh i've forgotten about the move completely and then scorpio pulls out here and i'm just thinking ooh. I haven't seen that in such a (laughs) a long time i might have to steal this yeah (laughs) bring this back uh, if I see that pop up on a show I'm at and, and you do it, I'll know exactly where it's from. <laughs> <laughs> um, we get an amazing exchange as well with um, neck bridges and Benoit trying to jump onto Scorpio to force him flat on the mat for a pin. But Scorpio is doing this amazing neck bridge and showing incredible strength. And it turns into like monkey flips again and again and they're countering each other and it's just so smooth and so good and the whole time it's not just acrobatics and and sort of flips i guess for flips sake it all makes sense to the story and then attempting to win the match it is it's it's a brilliant a brilliant section throughout the whole contest isn't it oh yeah it this match i was i was watching this match and i genuinely had no idea who who would win this because it was such a constant back and forth battle that like I was, I was fine with either man winning it in the end. I was just impressed at what they were doing. And like you said, it wasn't just flips for flips sake. They were, everything had some sort of purpose. Everything they did like Benoit, um, Benoit diving off ropes and then going straight back into something technical, just to wear, wear Scorpio down. Like he knew exactly what he was doing, and Benoit's strikes and suplexes—they all had purposes. He'd hit a suplex, and then he'd work that part over instead of just like launching a guy and then leaving him, let him to get a bit of respite. He'd dive right back on him and just try and wear them down. Yeah, because he again, it's, 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 it's as we've said, he's trying to win the match, and that's to me what the aim should be. If if you're if you're in any sporting contest you should be trying to win what you're doing. And sometimes I think, especially modern day wrestling loses track of that aim. And it's about getting certain spots in or getting certain moves in. Um, and almost, it almost takes me out the moment because somebody could have a real bad knee injury, for example, in, in the match, in a match we're watching. And then his opponent might go for some big Spanish fly just cause it looks flashy. 
as opposed to carrying on working on the knee, which is if you're in um, a real sporting contest, that's what you would do. Oh, yeah, you pick you pick any sort of weakness you could see and just go after it. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I mean, we got a huge um, belly-to-back suplex from the top rope from Benoit, um, and then Benoit also hits a great middle rope leg drop as well, which is something I've not seen him do well before or since I, that I remember. Um, just absolutely fantastic. One thing you notice in this match, though, that you don't get on the other channel, I suppose, um, is right opposite the hard cam, so the crowd facing the main camera. There's lots of empty seats during this match, and only a few of them get filled as the show goes on. So it's obviously not a full sellout because there are empty seats, but the fact that the seats are left empty kind of, once I noticed it, I couldn't stop looking at it because it's something that you don't see. It's something you're not really used to because if the crowd isn't full, wrestling companies nowadays, they fill the hard cam side first. Yeah, so that true. Yeah, so you don't see empty seats on television. So it's kind of, a weird thing to be looking at because simply because you're not used to it, I guess. Yeah. I mean, you're right. I, you must have a bit more of an eagle eye than me. Cause I, I didn't notice that throughout the night. I, I didn't even notice the, uh, empty seats in the background. Uh, I just, I've just got far too much time on my hands. <laughs> <laughs> um, I couldn't take my eyes off this match to be honest. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And, and, Basically, going into this, they they'd been wrestling in January through through you know the WCW house show circuits and a couple of television matches that had gone the time limit. This one here, there's a 20 minute time limit on the match again, but on this occasion, um, Scorpio actually beats Benoit on like 19 minutes 59 seconds, which I thought was really clever considering the amount of draws they'd had going into the pay-per-view that it almost looked like it was going to go the same way. And you had this brilliant, brilliant final exchange where they're countering each other's moves. And eventually uh, Scorpio gets Benoit in this very clever roll up and Benoit, whilst he's being pinned, looks like he's legit fighting to get out of the roll-up, get his shoulders off the mat, which again is sometimes something I think a, a little touch that gets missed out sometimes nowadays. Yeah, it's it's the little things like what you just said, which make it look like it's a real struggle. And mm-hmm. um, the last two to three minutes where they were just trying any form of pinning opportunity they had just to get this match sort of in their bag... I actually thought it might go to a time limit draw, but the, I thought it was going that way. Yeah, I yeah. agree. But uh, the um, the announcer started the like a fifteen second countdown of this match, and just how frantic both men got with their pinning attempts, and I like the I had such respect for this ending on nineteen fifty nine because that's got to be so hard to pull off. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you see it all the time where it's not quite worked out. I, mean, I, I recently covered um, WrestleMania 16 with David Eaton, and the, the hardcore match there is set to a time limit. And this is WrestleMania, and this is the biggest company in the world, and they get it wrong, and it screws the finish up. Um, and it's happened, you see it happening all the time at different places, you know, with, with the ref not sinking completely correctly with the truck or the count or anything like that. All it takes is to be off a smidge 
and it ruins it. So the fact that it works so well here, yeah, it works. It, it was perfect the second it? as well. Like phenomenal, phenomenal end to this match. Absolutely brilliant stuff. I really, really enjoyed it. I wanted um, them to go again. To be honest, as soon as it finished, I wanted them to go again. There's another contest actually with Benoit around this period. I'll dig it out and text you the details. Oh, he wrestles. He wrestles. Um, oh, what's his name? Brian Armstrong. One of the oh, Armstrong yeah. boys. And I believe it's on a Clash of the Champions. And again, it's similar sort of time frame to this. And it's early in the card again. And it's just another example of how brilliant Benoit was around this time. But also the opponents he's working with here. Uh, sorry, Cactus Jack. Um, Two Cold Scorpio and Armstrong. It's so, so good. It's put together such great matches. And obviously... I feel every time we talk about Benoit on this show or chain wrestling, like my other show, it almost has to come with a little asterisk and a disclaimer to say, regardless of how much I enjoy Benoit as a wrestler, obviously I don't respect him as a man and I hate what happened at the end of his life and it's disgusting. It almost feels like you have to put that disclaimer forward. But ultimately, this period of Chris Benoit in ring, you can't deny how talented the man was. No, yeah, I I had real sort of trouble because obviously yeah like you said there are some horrendous things that happen towards the end of his life and obviously it's i don't compone it at all because it's it's horrific but Mm -hmm. the the level of talent he had and the mind for the little things it's sort of you can't you can't deny them because as much as you want to distance yourself and people try to distance themselves from benoit like there's so much you can just learn from his in-ring talent. Yeah. Without a doubt, without a doubt, you know, I mean, somebody, somebody on a, on a previous recording, I had a good friend of the show called uh, Paul Tolly. He came on and we looked at, um, ultimate raw rumble competitors. And so it was a real good fun show. We put together like our ultimate, ultimate 30 man raw rumble throughout the years. And he summed it up very, very well, but used Hulk Hogan as an example. Um, Hulk Hogan was a big favourite of his growing up. Um, and, and I suppose to many, many people, he was of a certain age. I'm of an age where I lived through Hulkamania. I, I loved it, you know. It's, <laughs> um, and he summed it up really, really well with Hogan. I suppose it does kind of fit to the Benoit scenario too. His words were, I love Hulk Hogan, he's my hero, but Terry Bollea is a piece of shit. Yeah. And and I thought, well, that's a really simple, sort of stripped back way of putting it. But how accurate Mr. Tolly was when he when he said that on the show a few weeks back, I thought. Yeah, no, that is that is a very accurate way of sort of being able to slightly break the two apart. Yeah. But yeah. still being like, well, yeah, he has he has done some horrendous things as well. But Yeah, definitely. Definitely. But ultimately, this match for me, like I said, was my match of the night. It was absolutely fantastic. Um, following this contest, we have Dustin Rhodes on the phone to some fans um, with cables all over the desk. And it looks very low tech. And uh, <laughs> I suppose I was going to say of its time, but it doesn't even look of its time. It looks of like previous years. <laughs> I think it's yeah, the early sort of television phone-ins. Yeah, exactly. It, and this it is... seems so out of place. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And this is before you get uh, mean gene shilling the WCW hotline, every pay-per-view as well. 
basically said, oh, we've got some big news for you. There's an, uh, an ex-WWF star backstage here at this WCW show. You've got to ring the hotline for us to tell you. And it ends up being like, I don't know, the Brooklyn Brawler or something like that. And you've just been conned at your 299 or whatever. Yeah. You know, it's... <laughs> um, we also have uh, an interview with Max Payne, but you can't really hear anything he's saying at all. He's kind of mumbling, and I've, I really struggled with this interview, Sean. I couldn't quite catch what, what the point was he yeah. was trying to make. Yeah, I sort of had the same. I was, I think I watched it a couple of times, and it's quite hard to sort of make out what he's on about. Mm-hmm. Um, I found this to be a little bit of a theme, especially with the refs as well, when they're sort of announcing the rules of a match to be a sort of theme throughout the show. Yeah. Like a lot of the promos were, there was this sort of mumbly element where you couldn't really hear what was going on. Yeah. No, you're spot on. The refs are, the refs are mics terribly when they're trying to give their instructions for the different, the different rules for the different world titles. I think that's yeah, especially thing. the NWA one. Cause I was a yeah. little bit confused as to what was going on. But the, um, Oh, I think WCW just always had this kind of problem, though. Even when they got huge and they were like the number one company in 96, 97, and into 98 as well, they, they were making money hand over fist, but they never quite got the audio side of things perfect. So sometimes a guy's entrance theme would be so quiet you couldn't hear the music. Um, or you'd have the entrance theme so loud you couldn't hear what the commentators were saying. It was almost like the mix was always kind of just off. Yeah, it was always you know? slightly off, wasn't it? To yeah. one degree or the other. Yeah, they never quite got it right. And the one that always tickles me is when they used to hire in um, Buffer to do the ring announcements at a huge, a huge expense. This guy was very, very expensive for WCW to bring in. I've heard different figures from $10,000 to $30,000 per show to announce like one match, their main event of the evening. Um, and then Tony Schiavone would talk over the top of him. Yeah. So they paid all this money. <laughs> They've paid all this money to have this ring announcer. who's like a real, you know, symbolic, famous ring announcing voice. It's a big get, and it makes them seem so such a big deal and so legit when he's announcing their world title matches. But you can't hear him because Tony Schiavone or Larry Zabisco or whoever is just chopping away over the top of him, like yeah, just chops in. Yeah. It just again, it's just. <laughs> So such a WCW thing, but there we go. Um, our next match has a debut, uh, the debut of the recently arrived British Bulldog to WCW, um, and he's facing Bill Irwin of WWF The Goon fame. Um, they mentioned Wembley selling out when the whenever the Bulldog wrestles there, which I thought was quite funny because it's basically been once. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, it has been once, hasn't it? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, Ventura talks about Rastafarians and cornrows for a little while on commentary in this match because of the Bulldog's hairstyle, which I thought was a bit odd, and it didn't age very well at all. No, um, it, it did seem a little bit offensive. Yeah, yeah. I mean, again, it's very much... Whenever I watch these old pay-per-views and these things pop up, I always do try and think it's of its time. Yeah. But sometimes I listen and I think, was this ever a time? You know, it's like, is this ever really applicable? But yeah, biggest... it's, it's one of my biggest problems with uh, Jerry the King Lawler back in the day is yeah. like, you watch some old stuff now, you think, how was he allowed to say all of this stuff? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I mean, it was obviously it was an edgier product. It was the Attitude Era and the whole sex sells thing, yeah, I guess. Yeah, but like some of the stuff he says is real, like, yeah. skeevy and 
Yeah, definitely. Dirty old like, man, and you're like, oh, come on, Jerry. Like, Yeah, you watch it back, and it's like... At the time, I don't think I noticed it as much. Again, because it was of no, that time. Yeah, period. definitely, because it was of its time. But now we've sort of moved past that era. And, yeah. and he wasn't... Like, trying to legitimise people. And you look back, and you think, ah, oh, probably didn't help, did it? No, no. And you look at... Um, some of the accusations against Mr. Lawler in his life that he's had to go to court about and so on um, in the past with regards to teenage girls in hotel rooms and, and so on. And then he's making comments like that on national television to yeah. girls. I mean, I mean, Kelly Kelly, when she was in the WWF, he was making lewd comments about her. And I oh. believe she was only like 19, 20. Yeah, so she, she was 19 when she was debuted in WWF. Okay. okay. Um, and he must have been... I don't know, in his 50s at this stage, I'm potentially, it's like, okay, mate, that's, that's a bit, you know, but there we go, that's, that's Laura for you, I guess. Um, yeah. A note I've got here that I really was interested to ask you about, Sean, seeing as you've got experience actually in the ring. Um, am I, I, I could be completely wrong in this, but I'm really interested to hear your thoughts. There's a few moments in this match where the Bulldog's opponent, Bill Irwin, he looks... He looks very awkward and difficult to work with to me from the outside looking in. Like I said, I've got no experience whatsoever. He looks kind of dead weight when the Bulldog's trying to switch his position midair into a power slam position. Um, he doesn't look comfortable taking that long, delayed vertical suplex. There's a few moments where the Bulldog either goes to whip him into the turnbuckles or collect him from the turnbuckles, and Irwin doesn't quite doesn't quite help the process potentially um it just looked very awkward for me sat at home watching uh, when you watched it back did you pick up on any of that yourself with, with your actual in-ring knowledge yeah i i found that exact thing as well i mean yeah he just looked he looked a little bit lost throughout everything mm. that was going on like he wasn't sure of what was happening or where he's going and i i've come up with like a thing it's either it it was such a mismatch of talent to me because the bulldog i mean everyone knows how good the bulldog was and mm -hmm. like this was this could have been such a great debut for him and it, it was essentially a squash match so he did come off pretty well and i mean the ovation he got but erwin is either just not on the bulldog's level and it really showed or he's possibly the biggest genius at making someone else look great. Right, because okay. the Bulldog looked like a million dollars. Yeah. And Irwin just looked like some dude off the street, I thought. Like he wasn't yeah. really sure what was going on. Like I know that sounds a bit harsh, and he's probably oh, I... he's put his reps in and stuff, but he just he looked lost and he wasn't sure what was happening or where he was going or anything like that. It yeah, it was it was a sort of a bittersweet match for the Bulldog, I think. Yeah, and then he cuts a pro... Ultimately, the Bulldog wins, as you'd imagine, after five minutes or so, approaching six minutes, with his running power slam finisher. Um, he then goes and has... Uh, he then goes, rolls out the ring and cuts a promo, saying about going after the WCW world title that Vader holds, and he's coming for Vader. And I, I think maybe WCW... They want to get they want to get the bulldog on screen. He's the new accu acquisition. They want to try and get him straight into the main event picture. I appreciate that, but the guy's just worked. He's not notorious for having 
the greatest of cardio going, um, famously, you know, blowing up at the uh, SummerSlam 92 match after two minutes and, and Bret Hart having to sort of carry him through it, uh, as Bret tells the story. So he's just had this match. He's rolled out the ring and he can't really catch his breath. And I just think they didn't really help the bulldog there because the promo is not very, not very good. It's a bit of a struggle. He, he, he kind of stumbles over his words a couple of times. doesn't really... He struggles to say the WCW World Championship. He keeps just bumbling through that that line. And I'm thinking to myself, well, if if I was doing this, I'd maybe get him backstage, let him have a drink, chill out, catch his breath, interview him later in the show. It's a pay-per-view. People aren't going to go anywhere. They've paid to watch the whole thing. So maybe they did the, the Bulldog a little disservice there by getting him to cut that promo right there and then, potentially. Yeah, no, I I think you're right. He did. It was sort of mumbled and out of breath and just one of those. But after watching the match, I don't think it was the right time for that promo. Okay, like it wasn't. It wasn't the win to, in my opinion, to validate him to think. Oh, right, I'm going to go for the title. I'm going to make it, it. I think he needed a better win for to then cut this promo. Mm-hmm. No, I understand. I mean, he ended up working at the top of the card pretty much straight away with WCW. He was involved with Sting in a tag match against Vader and Sid at Beach Blast or Bash at the Beach 93. Beach Blast, they called it back then, didn't they? And they had the really weird um, mini film before the pay-per-view where they're on speedboats and walking, Sid's walking across the beach in his wrestling gear, but flip-flops and, and just a very <laughs> odd little mini video. I think, I think there's a shark involved as well. It's a real strange video. Yeah, it's almost like a that, mini that sounds like true to WCW's nature. Yeah, you've got to see it to understand it. It's quite quite unusual. Beach Blast 93, if anyone wants to have a little look at that. And he ends up wrestling Vader one-on-one for the title, um, main eventing a Clash of the Champions or a pay-per-view not long after this. And I believe he wins, but only by DQ or count-out. And he's not long for this world in WCW. He's he's knocking around for a short period, and he finds himself back in the WWF again, goes out to Japan and so on. And never really, I suppose, this incarnation of the Bulldog never really settled anywhere again. It was more when he put the jeans on and cut his hair that he sort of found a little bit of a longer run in the WWF again. But yeah, it's really interesting as well. Seeing the bulldog decked out in the, in the colors and so on and not coming out to rule Britannia. That's that was strange. Yeah, it, it was a little bit strange because I was expecting it, but God, I love seeing the bulldog. Bulldog was yeah. just phenomenal. Yeah. Great stuff. Um, after this, we have quite a, a, an oncurring, a reoccurring theme, I suppose, um, with little, tiny, very, very short videos of Sting and Vader building up to this um, Whitechapel uh, f- fear match, whatever they're describing it as later on. What is it? The the Whitechapel? Uh, I think it's... Uh, White Castle, sorry. It's the White Castle, yeah. We're, that just makes me think of the burger joint. Exactly. <laughs> I don't know about anyone else, but the White Castle of Fear. Yeah, 100%. When they brought it up early on in the pay-per-view, I was sat watching this and the wife was sat next to me. But she she wasn't watching, watching. She was getting on her own stuff. I was sat watching this, making my notes and so on. They said White Castle, and I was like, that's a burger, isn't it? Yeah. And the wife was like, yeah. (laughs) I thought it was going to be a brawl in a White Castle. I thought, yeah, I'm in for this. A strap match in a burger joint. Let's go. (laughs) 
<laughs> Why not? Yeah, just squirting mustard in each other's eyes. Away. <laughs> <laughs> um, but these videos are, are basically Vader is in some location, in some cave or some dungeon or something, growling at the camera and saying about Sting is coming. Come on, Sting, let's do this. Whilst Harley Race stands behind him laughing like a maniac. And it's all lit, weird. Imagine the, the Dungeon of Doom segments in the mid-90s. It's like that, but perhaps even cheesier. Yeah, uh, and um, slightly foggy as well. I don't know if that was just me that sort of saw that, but everything seemed to just be slightly not in focus. Yeah, I imagine that's probably just Harley Race puffing on a cigar, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I know what you mean. It was that kind of... It, it was quite quite odd... You can see what they're trying to do. They're trying to build up hype and fear for this this main event contest. Um, and then you get an image of Sting in a helicopter flying to this location to go and meet Vader. And then it just carries on with the show. And we get about three yeah. or four of these throughout yeah. the show. These tiny little segments that just sort of pop up and disappear. No one talks about them. No one on commentary mentions them. They just no, pop up and I go. I found it really weird that no one sort of... Because they're only, I'd say they're what, no more than like 15 seconds each. And, yeah, no one just sort of makes any sort of reference to them. And I don't know about you, but none of them hit with me. No. They all seemed a bit hokey and sort of doing what they'd already built as a classic main event. A bit of a disservice. Yeah, I think so. It was just strange, wasn't it? That's the only word I can really come up with. It was quite just strange, the whole thing. Just just needless. They were just needless. Exactly. Um, our next contest is a bit of a change of pace, really, after watching the excellent matches we've had up till now, the, the sort of bulldog five-minute contest aside. We've had uh, Cactus Jack defeating Paul Orndorff in a Falls Count Anywhere match after around 12 minutes or so. I loved the way they started this match. They, they, the, the, Orndorff was backstage getting an inter, a pre-match interview, and then you can hear Cactus Jack just sort of yelling yeah just sort of yelling in a distance yeah and then orndorff sees him off camera and runs out through the curtain to to go into the entranceway and jack starts following him with a great big metal shovel and the match just begins i thought that was a really unique good way of starting yeah i i really enjoyed the start of this match yeah orndorff orndorff being halfway through an interview and then you see a shovel come flying through the screen (laughs) yeah Jack yelling was that was brilliant yeah, I, I wasn't um, expecting. I could hear him in the background. I thought, "All right, he'll eventually catch up." But just seeing a shovel come into the screen out of nowhere was was brilliant because it's not Cactus's trademark sort of barbed wire wrapped baseball bat or two by four. It's just a massive snow shovel. Yeah, yeah, and it's something he wielded a little bit in WCW, I think. But it's the sound it makes as well when it hits the floor or the walls or anything like that is really it's a real dramatic clang isn't it it's, it's it, i think it's great clunk isn't it yeah <laughs> um we see lots of crazy stuff from jack here there's a sunset flip from the middle rope oh, um, to the floor yeah i oh, need to talk goodness. about this because uh i mean throughout this match cactus jack true to form he just seems indestructible like but this middle rope sunset flip that he does, he dives completely over Orndorff and just slams onto the concrete floor. Yep. And it was, I, it made me wince, to be honest. It was a disgusting landing. 
because it's just flat back on solid concrete from, I'd say, a good eight feet in the air. Yeah. But then was... Cactus just pops up as if nothing happened. Yeah. Like, you know he's Cactus is straight back up. Yeah, it's it's absolutely mental. Um, and the thing as well is when he went up to the middle rope and you had Orndorff, because Orndorff had been uh, had been knocked off his feet at this stage and he's just trying to get up to a standing position as as um, Jack is climbing up to the middle rope. Orndorff's obviously on the floor. Jack's on the outside of the ring but climbing up the ropes. Yeah. When he hits the second rope and stops and kind of looks at Orndorff ready to execute whatever he's about to go for, you could have given me 10 guesses. I would not set a sunset flip. No, I thought he was coming for some sort of axe handle or his clothesline that he throws off the second rope sometimes. Yeah. But yeah, you're spot on. Yeah, this this disgusting sunset flip. I mean, why was, the hell would you do that? <laughs> I don't know, but it's the fact that like he clearly got the worst of that, mm. but he did not feel it. He's like I said, true to form. He seems indestructible during this match. Yeah, sadly nowadays you see him and he's, he sort of struggles to walk, doesn't he, and stuff. So yeah, yeah. yeah there we go. Some horrible, horrible stuff though. Yeah, um, they end up fighting through the crowd a little bit and around the outside. And there's a suplex here over oh, the one on the onto, safety rail onto the guardrail. Yes, and Jack yeah, kind oh, of bends. You see Cactus just bend in half. Oh, and he bends completely the wrong way. It, it's, oh yeah, you know, it's oh. It looks terrible. But again, it looks legit. It looks, you know, because it is, I guess. You can't, you can't, you can't stage that. That's ridiculous, you know? No, that's just your body going as far as it can one way where it's not supposed to. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, Orndorff ends up working on Cactus Jack's leg for a bit here, um, tying him up in the guardrail. And I think we see a figure four at one stage as well. And uh, Jack's got a knee brace that ends up being removed and Orndorff uses it as a weapon for a period. Um, yeah. And that's another one, isn't it? Orndorff, Orndorff hits Jack with the knee brace. Um, he's in the, he's in the ring and he's hitting Jack who's on the apron with the knee brace. And Jack just takes this bump off the apron onto the floor again. And it, it is literally just a splat. It's just, yeah, there's no, never, there's no way you can make pleasant. that comfortable. Yeah. It's never, it's never pleasant. No, no. Like, um, going back to when they were fighting by the guardrails, mm-hmm. there was this, there was this bit where Orndorff, I think he chucks him over the guardrail, but somehow Cactus does some sort of like spin off two of the guardrails. I don't know if you noticed it. Yep. But I, I was very confused because I thought he was just going straight over lands on the ground, but then he's still in the air doing some sort of spin on this guardrail before he falls off. Yeah, it's I just, don't even know how he did it. No, and, he, and again, this is not this is not someone like a Rob Van Dam or a, the Young Bucks who are I don't know the Young Bucks are what two hundred pounds each. Van, Van Dam in his prime was what two thirty or whatever. This is Cactus Jack who, on his best day, weighed three hundred pounds. Yeah. So to be flying around as you've just explained there, Sean, it to me is incredible. Yeah, it yeah. Some of the stuff he did just it still amazes me. Yeah, I really enjoyed this match as well. Um ultimately we get uh Paul Orndorff signalling for the pile driver, which was his finisher. Um 
Jack ends up, as he's posing to the crowd, sorry, as Orndorff's posing to the crowd and signaling for the power driver, Jack just clobbers him with a shovel out of nowhere oh. and pins him. Yeah. And it was over. <laughs> well, this is the thing. It was such a nice change of pace with this brawl compared to the very technical and map-based matches that we've had before. And yeah. uh, just the out-of-nowhere shovel-to-the-face one, two, three, instead of what nowadays you see is some sort of... Like, you can see the end of the match coming, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Like, everything sort of winds up to a certain point, and you kind of can guess where this point is but i mean Orndorff was in full control and then one shovel to the head and that's it which yeah. again seems realistic because yeah you hit me in the shovel with the head i'm probably down for three <laughs> at least three seconds yeah you'd think so wouldn't you especially <laughs> after you've been brawling around an arena for you know nearly a quarter of an hour yeah if you get, if you get hit with a shovel then it's going to take its effect isn't it oh yeah but again, I mean, I, I enjoyed this match. I mean, as I said, the Benoit Scorpio match for me is still my match of the night. But the opener, opening tag was good. Um, the Bulldog match was what it was. Just a quick five minutes. It did its job. But this one, Jack against Orndorff. Yeah, really, uh, really enjoyed this. Um, we are following that with another tag match. Um, we have the Rock and Roll Express, which I was, I was really happy to see the Rock and Roll Express come out. Um, I tried to watch these shows when I watch them back um, as cold as possible, I don't want to know what's on the card in case, in case it's something I've not seen before and there's results. I don't know. I think I try and watch them uh, as cold as I possibly can. So I, I can't remember this match from back in the day, so to speak. So seeing the rock and roll express come out, I was like, Oh, excellent. I, I'm a big fan of the rock and roll express. And then seeing Jim Cornette lead out the heavenly bodies. I was like, Oh my word, this is going to be, fantastic for the old school tag team wrestling fan that i am and it was good but it wasn't it didn't quite hit the heights i would expect it to for the guys in the ring i think what did what how did you how did you take this one yeah no uh, this match definitely did go through sort of highs and lows of the what you kind of expect versus the reality in which things were being worked um jim Cornette just being a dickhead I mean, I mean, true well, now, form, now I mean, in, now he's still in a bit life. of a dickhead now, isn't he? But <laughs> yeah, no, it was nice to see him in his tennis racket. And uh, I mean, the Rock and Roll Express. the The thing I find with watching their matches is that they just look like they're having so much fun. Yeah, like they are true sort of baby face smiles and you believe that they're having fun and they are having the time of their lives on this sort of crazy ride of their career. Yeah, definitely. And obviously the, the rock and roll have worked with Cornette managed tag teams. Their, their whole career is pretty much, whether it was the midnight express or the heavenly bodies here. Um, and you still had, you know, the, the sort of throwbacks to the midnights with Stan Lane being part of the heavenly bodies and Bobby Eaton, coming out with them as well before being sent to the back. Um, the rock and roll dominate early on and the crowd are loving it, chanting rock and roll, rock and roll, rock and roll. We get a cool little moment where they sort of go into a crisscross, which I've never been a big fan of seeing just blokes run back and forth on the ropes in a match. It doesn't quite make sense to me, but on this occasion um, we end up with Cornette accidentally bumping and in, getting into the ring to avoid getting um, a slap from one of the rock and roll express 
as his man is still running the crisscross and Cornette takes a great big bump off his man bumping into him. I, I got yeah, a kick out of that. Huge I, shoulder tackle. I was a big fan of that. Yeah, I really enjoyed that. That was great. Um, several pinfall attempts get missed by the ref as Cornette is distracting the, the referee as well. Great proper old school um, old school tag team tactics there, I guess. I, I'm a big fan of that. Um, old, old school manager vibes as well. Yeah. Which you don't yeah. really get nowadays. Like, man, the manager is such a sort of lost art form in today's sort of product. Yeah, I agree. And I think it can it can work. I think it can work at any time, any company, at uh, any level. Um, especially if you've got a guy who I suppose predominantly is less experienced or you've got someone who isn't particularly good on the mic, having a manager with them, you know, hides all that straight away. That, that, that oh, yeah. boxes that are missing in an instant. I'm amazed people don't do it more often. Like you said. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know why you see sort of AW try and do it a little bit mm-hmm. with giving people mouthpieces with legends, but they very, they're more of just a mouthpiece than, uh, than an actual sort of, Manager, like Arn, I think Arn Anderson probably is the best sort of manager that AEW can put out at this point. Um, but yeah, the WWE, apart from MVP recently with Bobby Lashley, yeah, sort of been. And I mean, look at look at the way he changed Bobby Lashley's career within months of just being his mouthpiece and helping him win matches and stuff like that, and just exuding. And building up Bobby Lashley, uh, it's amazing they don't do more managers personally. Yeah, yeah, totally. And again, you look in the eighties as well. They they had so many in the WWF with Heenan, uh, Slick, uh, all, all these guys. Jimmy Hart turned up there as well. Jimmy um, Hart managed pretty much everyone, I think, at one point. Yeah, totally. Got <laughs> everyone under his little heart banner. That's right. Uh, yeah, that's right. And even even like more individual managers like um, Paul Bearer for the Undertaker and so yeah. on. It's so it can really add to someone's character. Exactly. Uh, Cornet it just brings another depth as well. as well, depending on the manager you've got. Yeah, definitely. Um, the Heavenly Bodies are, are a funny one actually because they're, they're Smoky Mountain Wrestling champions at this stage, which is Jim Cornette's own own promotion. He's trying to run. Um, some great wrestling there of Smoky Mountain you can catch on the WWE Network as well. Very stripped back, old school, that sort of running, school gyms, that sort of thing. But there's some great stuff to be had. Um, they're here now wrestling in WCW in the February. By August, they had a an agreement with the WWF where um, the NWA and Smoky Mountain would exchange talent with the WWF. So the Heavenly Body is actually challenged for the WWF tag team title at SummerSlam 93. By this stage, Stan Lane w- was not with the group anymore. We had um, Jimmy Del Rey, who, who sadly passed away quite a few years ago now, as the other half of the Heavenly Bodies team. It's just a real little odd little run here in 93 for, for this team, I think. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a good tag match. It's not spectacular i think the opener was probably better than this um it felt like it felt like they were all saving something for another match yeah i'll tell you what that's a really really good way of summing this up it feels like it like i said at the start when we we were talking about this match at the beginning it's 
it was good without ever hitting the heights I expected. And you saying that is spot on. It did feel almost like they were just holding back a touch. Which yeah, is they they, strange. Showed, they were showing flashes of what they can do, but they were sort of slightly reining it in for maybe something a little bit later down the line. Mm. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, the Rock and Roll Express ultimately win for the... Uh, Big happy moment for the crowd after Bobby Eaton comes back from from being sent away um, and hits his partner by accident, which allows um, Ricky Morton, I believe it was, to get the pinfall victory. And again, I think I think Sean, you sum it up spot on there. It just seems like they were just not quite at full throttle, were they? No, I did think um, Eaton coming back down and jumping off uh, jumping off the top rope in a similar sort of nice little callback to the opener with uh, Austin doing the same thing. But this time, it he hits the wrong man, and the faces go over. Yeah. Yeah, it's a clever little touch. I didn't pick up on that myself, actually. Yeah, that's, that's, that's spot on. Um, yeah, I mean, again, it was it was, it was was good without being spectacular, shall we say. Um, this is followed by something else that isn't really good, and that was uh, another quick Sting versus Vader video. Um Again, very surreal. Sting's wearing some kind of odd blue leather outfit and those types of sunglasses that you could only literally buy in 1993. Um, And they end up tying... uh, In a later one, they tie the strap on each other whilst they're in this castle cave effort. It's just all very strange. It's just weird. It's just, like, it is... It's just weird. Yeah, very much so. Um, Ventura also on commentary states this is the biggest wrestling card from top to bottom he's ever seen I think somebody's telling a few porky pies <laughs> and um, <laughs> we are then followed by where I think the show kind of takes a bit of a nosedive for me um, we have Max Payne versus a pre-gold dust Dustin Rhodes um, Dustin defending the WCW United States title and we're told very clearly this is WCW rules for this match however the referee does not explain very clearly what those rules are so that's a bit frustrating um, I could not get into this one at all and the, I think the crowd also with a lack of volume struggled to get into this one as well how did you find this one? Yeah, I I totally agree with you. I I found it very hard to try and connect myself with this match. Um, Dustin Dustin Rhodes obviously worked in a very professional way, but Max, what I don't know what was going on with Max Payne because, like, I, we didn't we haven't mentioned it yet, but he played the national anthem for some reason mm-hmm. at the start of the show. Yeah, was one long guitar solo, wasn't it? Oh my god, he went on for ages, didn't it? Yeah. Um, yeah. but yeah, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. It was a bit sort of like, uh, Bill Irwin where he just looked, he looked lost as to what was happening. And he I didn't think... look like, it looked like this was his very first match. I'm not sure if it was. No, but... he'd been around a little bit, but he, he wasn't you know, by any stretch of the imagination, what you call super experienced, but he'd been in the wrestling business for a, a couple of years at this stage. But um, the big thing for me was when he got in the ring, when he when he played the national anthem, he's got this cool looking, cool coloured guitar, and I think yeah, okay, it went on for quite a while. But I think he did a decent job in playing the anthem the way he did. He looked 
1993, he looked the part, I think, with the hair. And he's obviously a very big, imposing man and the leather jacket and, and so on. And he makes his entrance for his match here sometime later. And he's still got the hair and a different jacket on this time, a huge coat with flames up it. And he looks, he, to me, he again, bearing in mind the, the year this is, to me, he's got a look about him. And I think, okay, I, I can get behind this guy. Let's see what he's got. Then he takes the jacket off and he's wearing some terrible just average standard wrestling gear. And in that instant, the whole bubble is burst because he looks like a completely different person for me. I, I found that exact thing as well. His, his attire was, it was very odd. It was just odd. Cause it like, it didn't match and it looked like he just raided a lost property bin. <laughs> Cause he had, he had some like black shorts with a blue stripe up them. Yeah. And then he's just got this vest on and his hair all over his face. So you can't, get any of his sort of facials which is a major part in being able to help tell stories and Mm -hmm. uh getting the crowd involved and stuff so you couldn't see any of that which i thought was another odd choice but i think i heard the commentator say that this was his first title shot yes i think so so i don't know if him being a bit shaky and lost could just be down to nerves of being on a pay-per-view and having a title shot but yeah, yeah this, this match just didn't, it didn't seem to connect with me, you, or anyone in that crowd. I no, think. no. Um, he, Max, uh, Max Payne went on to be Man Mountain Rock in the WWF. A very similar sort of gimmick, really, where he'd play the guitar, um, wear bright colored dungarees and so on to the ring. Um, never really settled there either went around a few indies and a few different companies and ultimately retired. Um, but yeah, he never really sort of settled anywhere. I think the biggest part of his gimmick was the fact that he was just a guitarist, which is fair enough. I cannot play guitar. I have the utmost respect for those who can, but I don't tune into a wrestling show to see uh, an average wrestler play good guitar. I tune into a wrestling show to see good wrestling. So maybe that was why it didn't quite resonate with me. I don't know. Yeah, no, I, I know what you mean. Um, but yeah, it just, yeah, this match just didn't connect. No. There was, and I mean, it ends in a sort of weird DQ anyway. So it's mm-hmm. kind of a bit of a relevant match. I, I would sum this up as the piss break match personally, which I feel bad for Dustin Rhodes because like he was, he worked a very professional sort of match. Uh, in his natural persona going after the arm and everything and wearing people down and working on body parts but yeah it just it was one of those I think yeah yeah I mean to me this is the 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 weakest match on the show Um, I felt it went on for a bloody long time but actually looking at it it was only 11 and a half minutes it felt like so much longer it felt like it went 20 yeah, it was it was really slow, dragged out action, but at the same time, no action to actually make notes of. There was nothing substantial in that dragged out time that really sort of stands out. The commentators are constantly pushing Max Payne's arm submission finisher, which we'd never get to actually see. Nope. And <laughs> then, <laughs> then the ref bump and Payne's disqualified. And then I've just got a note that says, not very good. So <laughs> that was that, really. Yeah, um, it was it was a weird DQ as well because he Dustin's got him in. I think it was the sleeper, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, he, no, it was an abdominal stretch. He's got him in an abdominal stretch. Oh, that's right. Yeah, they had a long, yeah. a long sleeper segment. Not before that, didn't they? But yeah, they, yeah, they, yeah. Yeah, he's got him in an abdominal stretch, and Max Payne just grabs the ref and pulls him into Dustin's head, and the ref just DQ straight away. And yeah. I was just like, oh, okay. Yeah, that's that. That's a yes. that's a good way to uh, you know, get rid of your title shot. Exactly. Exactly. Just didn't. Um, it just didn't really make sense to an ending. I don't no, know if they were just told to go home because the match was shit, but it yeah, just seemed like a very sudden maybe. sort of ending to something. I thought, especially with the commentators building up this arm finisher that he's got. Yeah, which we it's never just, see. Yeah, we never see it, and it's just it's all very odd. Again, yeah, they, go, they go to like this little two-minute post brawl on the outside of the ring, which again was a bit needless because the match was done. Like, yeah, no one cared. What game? <laughs> no one no. cared, did they? No, no, no one cared. Um, what people did very much care for, though, was the next segment, and that was the return of Ric Flair that Sean mentioned earlier on. Uh, the crowd reaction was incredible he comes out and basically he's going to provide commentary for the next match we have but the crowd are just loving seeing rick back back home i suppose aren't they oh yeah i think maybe just shy of the main event i think rick flair got the biggest reaction of the night yeah by far um, like the crowd were encapsulated with him i mean there was there was points just before the start of this next match where all you could hear was the crowd shouting, we want flair. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Maybe we'll get to that now. The, the next match was uh, Barry Windham, who I'm a big, big fan of, challenging the Great Muta for the NWA World Championship. Um, this match is fought under NWA rules. And again, the explanation from the referee isn't very clear at all as to what that means. Um, not that it ever really came into play anyway. But... Yeah, the standoff between the two, whilst the referee has given his instructions and then before the match actually starts, we get huge We Want Flair chance. And that's got to be a little disheartening for the guys in the ring. But at the same time, again, maybe not maybe not very good planning from a WCW standpoint, putting Flair out there. I can understand why, because he's out there and he's, he's very heavily linked and associated with the NWA in the past. But putting Flair out there when you're about to have a title match like this and all the crowd are interested in is flair probably doesn't help the guys in the ring potentially no and uh, especially with what happened at the end of the match which we'll get on to in a bit um flair out on commentary i think it would have been better if they brought flair out after the end of the match yeah cuz i think that would link better with what actually happened at the end of the match. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, this this is the longest match of the night, and it really did feel that way for me. As much of a, a, a Muta fan I am, and I'm a big Wyndham fan as well, I, I was excited when I read Barry Wyndham, Great Muta. I was thinking, this is going to be... I'm really looking forward to this. And even more so than the tag match, it just didn't hit hit the nail on the head for me. It just didn't find the mark. It seemed very... Very slow, very long. Um, 
yeah, just not not masses happening. There's a couple of sections of the match where the pace picks up a little bit, and then it just slows back down again. And it almost feels like every time they they're building somewhere, it kind of just stops. If that makes sense. Yeah. No. You're right, because I did feel that I think they could have shaved at least five, five, six minutes off this match, mm-hmm. personally. And I think you would have got a better sort of result. But it did. It was very sort of slow and map-based and technical to start. For say, I reckon that went for about two-thirds of the match. It was yeah. just sort of slow, technical, sort of grounding your opponent, sort of slow wear-down style. And then it sort of, like you said, it picks up slightly. Uh, there's a bit where Muta takes a hard sort of elbow and spills out to the floor. Mm-hmm. And uh, they brawl on the floor for a, a couple of minutes and then it straight back in onto the... Um, uh, Wyndham brings Muta in with this suplex over the top rope, but then it sort of goes back, slows right back down again. Because as soon as he does that, he sort of locks him in this sleeper. And he locks him in the sleeper, I think, for over two and a half minutes. It's a long time. It's a long... And they're doing... The ref's doing the arm raise, and he's doing two. And Moot is firing up again. And then he brings it down again. And if I was in a sleeper hole for two and a half minutes, I think I'd be passed out. I don't know how... <laughs> I don't know yeah. how Moot has stayed in it. Because... That took me out of it quite a bit. Yeah, and you're right. You would be in the sleeper hold. The whole point of the sleeper is obviously you're cutting off, supposedly, you're cutting off blood to the brain and you can make it difficult to breathe. So, yeah, Yeah. you would pass out. And again, you're right. It does take you out of the moment. Um, The the map-based technical side of things is very much what I enjoy about wrestling. But this... Uh, this just wasn't it for me. It was okay. They were on the mat, but they weren't doing anything. No. I Muta had um, Wyndham in a headlock for so long at one so, stage. Yeah, such a long time. You know, and it did make sense, I suppose, from a storytelling standpoint, in that Wyndham tried several different counters to escape it, and Muta just kept going back to the headlock again. So it did kind of make sense from that standpoint. But it just wasn't, regardless of how much it made sense, it just wasn't good to watch. No, it sort of, it went on for longer, which sort of end up sort of checking your phone, which yeah. you really shouldn't do in a great move versus Barry Windham match. Yeah, exactly. But also, I also found that for this being possibly, what, the third or fourth match, which was heavily map-based, uh, for at least two thirds of the match, I mean, you can't follow the Benoit Scorpio back and forth technical thing with a slow working map base like this one was, mm-hmm. because I mean, you the Benoit match was what maybe forty five minutes to an hour just before it, and you'd seen how good that was. So I just sort of compared that with this match, and it just felt. It felt like it was a bit unnecessary. Yeah, and it, it was, you know, again, you could tell this was the longest match on the card. And I think if you can feel that the match is long as you're watching it, that's almost like your, your mind telling you, okay, I'm bored of this night, potentially. Because yeah. if you're enjoying a match that long, I don't tend to notice how long the match is, I suppose, if I've explained that correctly. Yeah, no, yeah, you're right. 
Yeah. Um, so then was, we come. There sorry, was, hold on. There was something else. I um, I found it. Did the ref announce during he was doing the rules that you couldn't go over the top rope? That's right. Yes. Okay, because I'm oh, actually, sure no, at on, one sorry, point sorry. they did. No, it would be the other way. The WCW rules were you're not allowed to throw an opponent over the top rope. NWA rules, it was allowed, I believe. Right, okay. Because, yeah, I thought he mentioned something about the top rope, and I thought, because at one point they go over it, and I thought, well, isn't that just the match is over? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know what you mean. Again, it comes back to WCW not making these things very clear at all. Yeah, that was that was the biggest thing. Because I, I heard sort of mumblings of it, but I didn't really get a full scale of what it actually meant. Yeah, I mean, basically, when when um, uh, if I'm wrong with any of this, please, people on Twitter, reach out to the show and and let me know. I'm just sort of reciting from memory now. It's very 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 possible I could be getting these dates and so on wrong. And uh, you can find the show at SJP Wrestling Pod, but. At this time, Bill Watts had come back to WCW or come to WCW and he was in charge of creative and running the show and so on. Um, and he was very much based in the old school process of wrestling. He, that's where he made his money in. I think it was Mid-South he ran and then the UWF for a short period. Again, I may be wrong with those details, but that's that's what I, how I remember it. Um, and he tried to instill a lot of the old values into the, this, this new product for 1993. And there's rules in WCW at one stage that you could not uh, throw people over the top rope. You could not do moves off the top rope. Certain top rope moves were outlawed as well and would be a disqualification. Um, he removed the mats on outside the ring to try and discourage people from do, working outside the ring. Uh, let's try and keep everything very much on the mat in the ring, I suppose. Um, I mean, this uh, this worked against certain people. The Rock and Roll Express moved on uh, from the company quite quickly. Um, you had a very young Rob Van Dam in WCW around this time, uh, but under wrestling under his real name, he wasn't actually Rob Van Dam at this point. He couldn't operate how he would like, so he then moved on as well. Um, yes, and Bill Watts, again, as I said earlier in the show, wasn't long for that role in WCW, but it kind of shows how... They were, like we said earlier, Sean, they just trying to find their feet and trying different things, weren't they? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And the thing with trying to keep it all sort of in the ring is that, especially what happened with the rock and roll and like Van Damme and stuff, is that you limit someone's arsenal and moveset to such a degree where they can't really work in a way in which they're happy with. Mm-hmm. which is why a lot of people left during this time as well. Yeah, definitely so. I mean, ultimately, um, Barry Windham wins the NWA World Heavyweight Championship here, um, and Ric Flair comes in the ring to help Windham put the belt on and celebrate with his former horseman buddy. Uh, Windham wants none of it, though, so we're obviously trying to set something up a little bit there. Um, for me, though, as a big Jim Crockett Promotions fan and a big Flair and Horseman and Wyndham fan, seeing the two of them stood in the ring there in 1993 with the big gold belt, I, I got regardless of how poor the match was, I got a little kick out of that. That was nice for me for, on a personal level. Yeah, it, I was. It was a nice touch at the end, I think, mm, to yeah. look towards the future of that 
championship and where they can go with it. But again, I think it would have been better to have Wyndham celebrate with the title and then have the flare music hit. And he sort of strolls his way out and helps put the thing on. But then the crowd gets the, they get the match because I think the crowd might have been a little taken out of it because they knew Flair was just on commentary, and that's not really what they wanted. No. They wanted Flair not. in the ring. Yeah, I mean, but, as you brought up, they're all chanting, we want Flair, whilst the match is starting. Exactly, and to have him come out at the end after Wyndham's been through this fight, to then have the Flair music hit, and to get that pop at the end of the match... I think it just would have tied everything better up together. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. I can see that. It makes a lot of sense. Flair, Flair could make his... He could go as slow as he wanted towards that ring. Mm-hmm. The crowd would have eaten it up. Same sort of way that The Undertaker takes about half an hour to get to the ring. Because <laughs> he knows the crowd just love it. Yeah. <laughs> and exactly. I mean, I fast forward where I can because, you know, there's only so many times you can watch that. <laughs> <laughs> fair enough <laughs> um that finally then brings us to our main event of the evening vader versus sting they've met up in their weird little burger joint castle cave effort for this white castle of fear there's women there for some reason um strapping the strap to vader they attempt to put on Sting, but he doesn't want the, the assistance of any ladies. He's going to do it himself, it looks like. The strap gets fastened on both of them. There's a bit of a flash of some colour in this cave or dungeon or whatever it is we're supposed to be seeing at this stage. And we're back in the arena again, and then Vader and Sting make their entrances. All very odd and confusing and strange, but there we go. Um, one big thing I take from this is... I mean, Vader, fantastic. You know, coming out in the cape and with Harley Race and the Vader music and absolutely brilliant. Big fan of Vader at this time. But Sting, oh my word, how over was this guy? Oh, mate, what what an ovation he got coming out of coming out of that uh, curtain towards that ring. Because, I mean, I have to make a note about Vader as well. He came out with such a great, angry, sort of, son of a bitch, I'm going to hurt you aura about him. And, like, he was yelling back at the crowd and stuff and just getting everyone sort of riled up. And then, like you said, Steen comes out to this amazing sort of ovation with the crowd. And, I mean, I love Sting. Sting's one of my favourite wrestlers of all time. And it's just nice to see it. Yeah, and, and this era of Sting is... Uh, if you ask me again tomorrow, I'd probably change my mind and say Crow Sting 97, but a lot of the time I look back on this era of Sting as being my favourite era because it's the first time I came across the guy. And he's colourful, and he's got the blonde hair and the bright orange tights and the crazy sparkly jackets, and that entrance theme is just pure late 80s early 90s rock and roll cheese and that's right up my street as well so um <laughs> just the colors and the energy and everything about the guy you just you just look at him and think he is an absolute star oh yeah and that's that's the other thing with uh sting bringing all bright vader comes out with 
sort of like he has this white cape, but he's very much sort of black and red. And then Sting comes out like the shining rainbow. There's yeah. just colour everywhere and sparkling everywhere. And you think this is a perfect sort of opposition to this guy. Yeah, it's very much light and day, isn't it? I suppose, mm. as you're saying. Oh, yeah, 100%. Yeah, I mean, the, the entrance theme as well for Sting, it, it's so cheesy and ridiculous, but I love it. It's just so daft. Um, he, the lyrics, it just, you know, he's a man called Sting. He's a man called Sting. He's a man called Sting. He's a man, and they just keep repeating that for ages. <laughs> and, and then they get to... <laughs> And then they get to the first chorus, sorry, the first verse, and they say something along the lines of, he does this, he does that, he's as big as a bull and as quick as a cat. And it's like, it's just so silly, <laughs> you know? It is. For, the, for Sting, who looks like an absolute rock star coming out to this, it's like he's got a song from the Wiggles or something like that. Oh, but I love it, though. And, and the thing is, no, I do love it. <laughs> the problem is now, now we've spoken about it. I know for a fact this evening when I sit down to have a beer and, and maybe do a bit of editing or whatever I need to do, uh, and I'm chilling in the back room, I'm going to be humming it. I can guarantee you now <laughs> because, because we've discussed it now, I'm going to get shouted at by my wife because I keep going man called sting in the back room. You know, whenever I hear it or talk about it, it's one of those songs that gets like, what do they call it? An earworm, is it? Where it just sticks in your head. And Yeah, yeah. So that's going to get me in trouble later, I expect. But <laughs> um, basically, the the White Castle of Fear match is an old school leather strap match. A, they're, they're saying it's lights out, as in it's not going to be sanctioned by WCW, um, which raises the question, then why is it in their ring, their arena with their officials? But there we go. Um same similar sort of sort of standard leather strap match rules. You just got to touch all four corners before your opponent does. Um, if there's any offense in between, it breaks the breaks the attempts to touch all four. And uh, yeah, I mean, I, I enjoyed this all in all. I mean, some strap matches have been done before this and since, obviously, and they don't quite quite hit hit the nail on the head it's a bit slow and sluggish and it turns into just a big game of tug of war i guess but this i thought i thought was really good i mean especially with sting early on he was just a board of energy wasn't he oh yeah this is this i think this might be one of my favorite strap matches because they knew exactly like it wasn't slow to start off with it was Big Van Vader just being like, well, I, I've i got all the power in this match and you can't run away from me. You're only so far away, so I'm just going to pull you towards me. And, I mean, that's what he did. He just yanked Sting towards him and just hit him with a clothesline just to show that he could do it. And then he stood there posing. And, yeah. and then Sting just fires up. I mean, he hits... He somehow gets the strap underneath Vader so he's got his arm between his legs so Vader gives himself a couple of low blows out of nowhere and Sting just comes off with an absolute flurry of punches to the face like he just goes nuts on him yeah yeah and and when he's doing those um he, he kind of has I suppose uh three main ways of striking his opponent doesn't he he has like the, the ordinary kind of right hand he has a chop, and then he has almost like a backhand 
a fisted backhand yeah the, the well. angry pimp slap as i like to call it <laughs> yeah that's a good name <laughs> <laughs> and, and he sort of combines all three in this flurry and, it, and it's great and he comes off the top rope for two big splashes as well but it's almost like it's almost like somebody needs to tell him sting just take a breath because he's so excited and so hyped up and the adrenaline's obviously so you know pumping so much through his veins that on one of them he damn near falls off the top rope just where he's getting carried away with himself oh yeah he's He's got too much adrenaline pumping around his body because he does everything we've just said. He, I think he does in about two minutes. Yeah. He just goes nuts for like two minutes. And I didn't think, I honestly didn't think he was going to hit that second splash. No, I thought he hit the first and I thought, and he goes immediately back up for a second. I thought, well, that seems foolish. Well, again, though, it's what you're conditioned to. It's what we see every week on television now, isn't it? Yeah. As a wrestling fan, you're kind of conditioned that to, in that scenario, that's what you expect to happen, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. You expect sort of mile a minute, but especially after watching the pay-per-view before this and everything sort of slow and sort of brawly and hard-hitting... To see Sting come in at the very start of a match with all this energy, it's such a nice sort of refresh. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. After the the previous two matches do sort of drag you down. And I, I kind of, after those two matches, I kind of did sit there thinking, man, I could just turn this off now and come back to it another time. But you're right. The, the energy shown by Sting and the just everything about this match early on gives you that lift back into getting more involved in the show again. Oh, yeah, I instantly got sucked straight back into this match. Yeah, definitely. Um, Vader gets uh, softly whipped by Sting here. He sort of pulls Vader's singlet down at the top um, and repays him for the whipping that Vader gave Sting on an episode of Saturday Night's main event going into this show. He he whips Vader relatively softly, to be said. It doesn't look vicious at all. Vader rolls outside the ring. And on camera, you can very clearly see... Harley race, just cutting Vader's black uh, back with a razor. Uh, yeah. It's just, it's just so, and again, if this was the other company, um, the camera would be nowhere near that, but they're literally looking right at it and you can see him blading Vader's back. It's insane. Yeah, I did. I did notice that because I thought sting, you need to lay these in a mm-hmm. bit more because God damn it. Vader did later. <laughs> oh yeah Vader didn't care <laughs> Vader, Vader doesn't care Vader will just hurt you I mean but yeah you could see Harley Race just slashing at his back and I thought you you, the guys the camera guys should be on top of this yeah the directors or whoever yeah don't be showing that on your pay-per-view that close up that obviously it's it's ridiculous but I mean that's a small gripe for me. Um, it does kind of take you out at the moment, and I don't. If I was watching with, say, my little girl, I don't think she would notice that. It's just that I'm more maybe mature and have been around the block a few more times. And yeah, you sort of look out for these little details. Yeah, potentially. Yeah. Um, apologies there if you can hear my dog barking in the back in the back garden. If everyone listening, um, he's, <laughs> having a, he's having a little run around. The sun's out. He's having a good time with his ball. So, good luck to him. <laughs> um, we then get something that I thought was quite clever. Uh, there's a little ref bump here and the ref ends up landing on the middle rope, but behind sting and Vader and sting picks Vader up onto his back 
goes around and touches three of the corners. And then Harley Race pushes the referee off the middle rope into Sting's path, which trips him and means he can't hit the fourth one. And I just thought that was, I'm not, I'm not really seeing the referee used as a weapon in that way by a manager. <laughs> yeah. You know, I thought, I thought that was quite a clever little touch. Yeah. I, th- I thought that was very clever in the way in which they did that. Um, I have to say, credit to Sting for carrying Vader for that long round his back. Oh yeah, because Jesus Christ, Vader's not a Vader's not a little man, and Sting had him on his back, just walking around the ring with him. Hey, Vader's what, like that, yeah. that fall as well, because he's got all of Vader's weights coming right on his back and his shoulders. Mm. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, I suppose the only thing left is the finish, and that to me that was kind of a little anticlimactic after all this. Vader just, you know, he's a bloody mess. He's bleeding from his ear, incredibly. I don't know what's happened there. Well, I think he busted Sting open the hard way um, a bit earlier on because Sting started bleeding from his forehead sort of halfway through the match. And there was a point where Vader's sort of in the corner and Sting is just laying shots for quite a while as well as... I think it was some form of receipt for what Vader had just done. I see. Okay, I didn't notice that. But yeah, okay, I see what you mean. Like. Yeah, and Sting was just laying... He, I think Sting must have thrown at least 25 to 30 punches at him. Just right. Vader can't cover him up. He's just getting smacked in the face. <laughs> and there's um, a point where Sting rips off Vader's mask as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And just continues to punch him in the head. Punch him in the head, yeah. <laughs> Oh, but he is a the proverbial, I suppose, bloody mess, isn't he? Blood oh, pouring yeah. from his ear. Yeah, his back he was bleeding. bleeding way more than I thought out of his ear. Yeah, it was it was quite shocking to see at the end. But Vader basically ends up just tagging all four corners and winning in in a moment where I didn't expect that to be the finish. It came across a little anticlimactic, but maybe that's I an it was issue. Very with... controversial. Sorry, finish. I thought it was very controversial that finish. Okay, because Vader. So Vader gets three posts. Uh, he wraps the strap round Sting's foot and just drags him along the floor. He gets to three, and it was stated in the rules that any sort of interference breaks up the count. Mm-hmm. But Sting kicks Vader, and Vader stumbles back and hits the post uh, yeah. to get the fourth post. And I thought, but Does should that, that not break the, Because yeah. he's just been broken up. Yeah, potentially. And because it's not like the ref was down at this point. The ref was in full view of it happening. So I don't I don't know if that was supposed to be what happened. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm not sure. I'm not, I think I think it was. I think that was the planned finish. And it was supposed to be all Sting accidentally, you know, helped Vader win the match or whatever. But again, it's, it's how you explained. With the rules in place... That potentially shouldn't have happened, maybe. Uh, and it's it's like a running theme throughout this show. And I suppose throughout WCW, in the majority of their existence, it's all a little bit confusing because nothing's really explained properly and nothing's really uh, stuck to when it is explained uh, and rules kind of come and go and so on. I mean, WCW was famous just being that sort of weird little place like that, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. They sort of did odd things and sort of went against the curve where they could. Yeah. Just a bit, just to be a bit different, I think. 
Yeah, and, and I suppose when you're trying new things, it doesn't always work. Um, there's just so many odd booking decisions in WCW's history and odd things that happen in matches and you know, finishes they always struggled with as well. I mean, Eric Bischoff on his podcast says quite regularly that WCW really struggled to come up with good finishes throughout his whole time there. So it's just, I love WCW because it was such a crazy, mad place. But yeah, there are so many issues when you look back at certain things like this pay-per-view, the different sets of rules for different title matches, but they weren't fully explained. The, the finish of the strap match effectively in a way, as you pointed out, does break one of the rules, but it's still the finish. Just so odd, odd little twists and turns, I guess there, Sean. Um, Okay, overall then, um, that's that's the end of, of, of the pay-per-view there. Um, we normally, on the show, any matches and stuff we look back on, any pay-per-views and shows we look back on, we give an old-school kind of grade marking to. Um, yeah, what, what did you think of the show overall, and what grade would you give it, my friend? So... Uh... This has actually changed just by talking through this. So okay. when I when I first watched the pay per view and I'd finished it, I I quite enjoyed it. I would have said that was a good sort of B B level pay per view. But now talking it through with you, and there's a lot more things I sort of need to consider really, and I think it drops to a sort of around a C level now. Yeah, with uh, okay. just going through some of these matches and actually talking through with with you and seeing the sort of lows that I might not have sort of accounted for the first sort of time I watched it. Well, I mean, bear in mind, obviously, these are just my opinions and my, my, my opinion is far from, from gospel or golden. You know, it's just, just my own viewpoint. Um, people may agree, people may disagree, and most people do disagree with me. I'm not going to lie, ask, ask, the, <laughs> ask the wife. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I just sort of, call it how i i saw it and everyone's different and everyone sees things in a different way um that being said i'm going for a c myself i think that the opener the the tag match with the hollywood blondes was was good the scorpio benoit match was fantastic yeah i think that was my match of the night yeah i agree and i agree closely followed by the main event i think yeah the main event i enjoyed a lot more than i thought i was going to i'm not a big fan of strap matches just violent yeah, exactly. But then when you have sort of 12 minutes of Dustin Rhodes, Max Payne, 25 minutes of Wyndham, Muta being incredibly slow and draggy and, and just not good entertainment. I mean, you're looking at that, that's 35 minutes of your pay-per-view right there. Yeah. Plus the Davey Boy Smith match, which was kind of a throwaway contest. They could yeah, have had it, was, it was a sort of throwaway sort of. Yeah. Um, it didn't really need to be on the pay per view, but no. it it had its place. Yeah, I mean, it was in, it, it was the, the debut of the Bulldog. I suppose they're trying to sell tickets and sell pay per view buys by saying it'd be his debut here. So I understand where they're coming from. But when you're looking there at sort of on a, on a on a relatively short pay per view, a good forty five minutes or so that you didn't really enjoy i didn't really enjoy so even though the the high points were very very high again benoit scorpio the main event certain moments of the fours count anywhere match as well the lows for me were incredibly low and that's kind of what drags it down to a c 
for me, I think, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, I I have to agree with you with that. The the lows were just a bit too low to mm-hmm. I mean they just completely took you out of the the pay per view. Like the like we've said, the Dustin Rhodes and Max Payne match was just a not completely nothing match. Yeah. So yeah. like I I ended up sort of watching it. I think I had to watch this sort of match twice because the first time I was sort of just zoning out on my phone and I realized I hadn't actually written any sort of notes for it. So then I had to sort of watch it again. <laughs> yeah, I mean this is a this is a funny thing that I've noticed as well going back looking at pay-per-views and so on for this show and, and sort of single matches when I do the chain wrestling show with, with my good buddy Mags. If I've not made notes, it tends to be one extreme to the other. It tends to be that the match was that bad that I've picked my phone up or I'm not paying attention or I'm looking to see what the dog and the cats are doing or whatever. Or it's that good that I've got dragged into it and I've got to rewatch it to make notes anyway. So there's no sort of middle ground with that. It's either absolutely fantastic or absolutely awful if I don't take notes. And on this occasion, the, those matches we're talking about, I think they lean more towards the awful, don't they? <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I'd, I'd agree with that. Yeah, definitely. Um, okay, Sean, thank you so, so much for sparing your time and coming back on the show to look back at this old WCW pay-per-view from 1993. I've had a fantastic time, my friend. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure. Would you mind letting everybody know whereabouts they can find you on the old social medias on the interweb in case they want to get in contact for uh, any future bookings or anything at all? Yeah, so I uh, I only really use Instagram. It's kind of my main social media platform. Uh, so to find me, it would be at the underscore uh, King Cage. And okay. that's, uh, that would be my Instagram. I do have a Twitter, but I I very rarely use it. I'm trying to be a bit more proactive on it now, um, but I'm not very interesting <laughs> <laughs> in the best form of way, but that is at KingCage6. No problem. And I'll tag all of those into the episode when it comes out um, so that people can find you that way as well. Um, you can find me at SJP Words on Twitter. You can find the show at SJP Wrestling Pod on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And while you're there, also have a little look out for the Chain Wrestling Show at Chain underscore Wrestling. The same as this podcast, it's available on pretty much all podcast platforms, your Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, wherever. Um, you may need to search under the name of the network, which is Visionaries Global Media. But check out the Chain Wrestling Show as well. It's, it's quite a lighthearted look at the, the silly world of wrestling with my good friend Mags. Um, we have a good time recording that show. It's getting a good, a good amount of feedback with people saying they enjoy listening to it. So by all means, check that out as well. Um, again, one last time, Shan, I'm hugely, hugely grateful for you taking the time to come and talk to me again, my friend. And I look forward to having you back on again. Yeah, definitely. I'm, I'm up for doing another sort of wacky WCW pay-per-view as well, because they are fun, to be honest. We'll have to have a little think and see what we can find. The wackier, the better, yeah? Yeah. I something, think we, with... something with monster trucks. <laughs> that one pay-per-view <laughs> oh, with monster trucks. 
Oh, okay. I'll have a little look at when that was. What was that, 95, 96-ish, I think, wasn't it? Uh, I think it might have been a bit later on. I think it was more sort of 99-ish. I think it was towards the tail end of the death of WCW. Okay, well, we'll have a little look into that one, potentially. Okay, my friend, thank you very, very much for coming on. And as always, to everybody else, thank you for listening. Thank you.